So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. The fun of Halloween is getting to be somebody else for a night. This week, we talk about artists who put on musical costumes so they can try out a new style. Plus, we pay tribute to rock and roll founder Fats Domino. Although I'll cry, and Toronto Star critic Ben Rayner remembers the late Gord Downey of the Tragically Hip. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and Greg, we always enjoy our annual Halloween show. Uh, you know, we've done so many of them. Songs about monsters, <laughs> songs about horror, terror, you name it, right? We're... we're, we're out of themes along those lines, monster songs. So we thought this year, what do you do on Halloween? You get to be someone or something else for a night. There's a rich tradition of this in, in rock and roll. Probably the most famous example ever, right? The Beatles become Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We're going to dive a lot deeper than that and have some fun about bands in a different guise. That's later in the show, Jim. But first, we need to talk about Fats Domino. I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill, on Blueberry Hill, when I found you. That, of course, Greg, is Blueberry Hill by the late, great Fats Domino. Number two hit on the pop charts, three million records sold. Fats Domino died at home this week in Louisiana at the age of 89, and rock and roll has lost another of its giant founders, a man who put his mark on this music like almost nobody else. 65 million singles sold uh, over his recording career, 23 gold records, second only to Elvis Presley. I think people forget that as a commercial force among those first-generation rock and rollers. Presley said the real king of rock and roll was Fats. You ought to look at that guy. Piano player, a distinctive piano player. Uh, Born In 1928, youngest of eight kids with Creole roots in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans, where he lived most of his life, uh, you know, fell in love with a piano at age 10. His family had this old upright. Uh, His brother-in-law was one of those wonderful traditional New Orleans jazz musicians. He had to write the notes down on the keys Mm -hmm. so Fats knew what he was playing. And in no time at all, he was attacking that piano so voraciously that his folks had to move it out to the garage. Um, He dropped out of school in the fourth grade. He was working as the helper for an ice man. This is a different century, a different time. Was married in 1947. Eight children. I love this. Every one of the kids uh, had a name that began with A. (laughs) Antoine, Anatole, Andre. 
Good family man. Uh, always went to church. Uh, millions of records sold. Stayed rooted. You know, that song that we played in with, Blueberry Hill. Um, there is a connection there because Louis Armstrong comes out of New Orleans, of course, comes to Chicago, winds up in New York. Fats first heard Louis Armstrong playing Blueberry Hill, and I think there is that connection there between traditional uh, jazz and rock and roll. I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. He brought some swing to rock and roll, don't you think? No, that's absolutely true, Jim. The swing is absolutely it. When we think about rock and roll, Fats Domino brought the roll. You know, yes. it was like, you know, when you think about the piano pounding uh, uh, players in rock and roll history, you know, the Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis style, those guys are pounding that piano. It's percussive. But with Fats, it was a rolling sound uh, that was propulsive. But he has sort of a relaxed New Orleans Big Easy sound to it, as well as in those vocals. Even when he was singing the sad songs, there seemed to be a little smile in Fats' Oh, voice, there was a you know? wink and a nod. <laughs> Blue Monday, how are you? Love New Orleans so much. Uh, he came off the road in the 80s. Many people thought that we'd lost him years ago. Hasn't been a live presence for decades now. But he said he would couldn't live anywhere else, even after Katrina, because he loved New Orleans cuisine so much. And that brings me to a point, Greg. I am an aficionado of fat rock and rollers. Right? <laughs> Fats was the first, the greatest, and he was sexy. And I admire that in a fat rock and roller. He was an originator. Uh, when you look back to 1949, when he was cutting some of his first records, I mean, those were rock and roll records. You know, he was interviewed in 1957 uh, when rock and roll had become a thing. And he says, you know, they're, they're, they're calling it rock and roll now, but it, it's really rhythm and blues. And I've been playing that for 15 years <laughs> in New Orleans, right, right, you know? Right, right. And he was right. You go back to those early records, before anybody knew who Elvis Presley was or Chuck Berry, Fats Domino was cranking out hits in New Orleans that were basically precursors. They laid the foundation for rock and roll. When when you think about not only Fats, but his songwriting partner, producer, arranger, David Bartholomew, mm -hmm. that was a songwriting pair. There have been rock historians who have said, uh, perhaps second or maybe even better than, you know, McCartney-Lennon, the best songwriting mm. combo in rock and roll history was Fats Domino and David Bartholomew. Uh, those guys had a string of major hits. Well, 35 you, you got, top 40 hits. you got a discography there that is the size of what used to be called a telephone book. Pages and pages of, of top 10 singles. 35 top 40 hits. 23 million records sold beginning uh, in 1949. I mean, 5 million sellers before anybody knew who Elvis was. Uh, you know, again, that rolling piano sound, those impish vocals. What a rhythm section. Earl Palmer on drums. Yeah. Lee Allen on saxophone. This was the template for the rock and roll rhythm section. Piano, a little bit of guitar, some saxophone, bass and drums, and with those lead vocals over the top, uh, you had the foundation of what rock and roll was to be. Little bee, little bee, 
A hit like Lottie Miss Claudie, Lloyd Price, a new artist, 1952, million-selling, multi-million-selling single, Fats came up with the piano line on mm-hmm, that. So you, mm-hmm. you can say that this guy had his thumbprints, his fingerprints, all over the foundation of rock and roll. Well, we forget that that first generation of rockers, the piano was the dominant instrument. You know, Jerry Lee Lewis and and Little Richard and nobody better than Fats. It, it was only you know, that guy Chuck comes up from St. Louis, right. Chuck Berry, and, and starts recording guitar. And it's interesting because I think Fats learned to play piano by studying guitar. He basically transposed guitar lines onto the piano. He was completely self-taught. So there was sort of an innate kind of feel already uh, for that instrument in the way he was playing uh, those piano rhythms. I want to play um, that 1949 song that I was talking about, The Fat Man. That, that really put him on the map. That's his sound. That's who he was, The well, Fat and he's Man. Owning. He's yeah. owning being who he is. I love that. And what, there's a fascinating story behind that. Well, it used to be a, a, a rather dire song called Junker's Blues that he and Bartholomew rewrote as The Fat Man to make it a signature song for Fats Domino. And it was the song that in many ways uh, declared, here I am. You know, welcome me to the world. Mm. Uh, originally, just a regional type of uh, hit in New Orleans, but then it exploded by 1952. It had sold millions of copies uh, and and was a was a nationwide hit. Um, and what I love about this song, you got that signature rolling piano sound that that New Orleans rhythm. Uh, that was a precursor for rock and roll, but also the wordless vocal, you know, the wah, 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 <laughs> that, 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 you know, at about a minute mark in that song, yeah. he starts going into this sound, he go, whoa. Can you imagine being a listener in 1949 and hearing that and you go, what is that? That is not scat singing. That is some kind of, you know, wild new thing that's going on. And it was a very feral sounding record at the time. And, uh, you know, when you think about Little Richard, you know, screaming tutti frutti, yeah. you know, the roots of that are in, in Fats Domino. Here's the fat man from Fats Domino on Sound Opinions. Fat Man by Fats Domino. I just think this guy was such a wonderful character in the history of rock and roll. Unlike a lot of those first-generation rock and rollers, he uh, he wisely managed his money, and he didn't get pushed around too badly. There's a great anecdote of in 1988, he walked in and paid cash, 130 grand, <laughs> for a Rolls Royce. And the salesman said, don't, don't you need to go to the bank? And Fats says, 
I am the bank, right? <laughs> I just love that. There's also, as I said earlier, he was a big man, but he was a sexy man. I found my thrill. Now, you know, we can we can play that for, for grade school children, yeah. right? But the way he sings, I found my thrill. Mm. Right? It's like three syllables, and it's beautiful. Mm. It's so lusty. Or ain't it a shame? You broke my heart when you said we'll part. And then that horrible whitewashing of the black greats of early rock and roll. Pat Boone wants to cover uh, Fats Domino, and he wants to change the title to isn't that a shame, right? <laughs> Grammatically correct. He's going to take the soul out of the music, first of all, Pat Boone, and then he's going to screw up the title. He winds up recording it as Ain't That a Shame, and that's what we think of the title of the song as Forever After. Ain't that a shame My tears fell like rain I want to play one more tune, though. I think it's important to remember that a lot of these 50s heroes were washed up in the space of, you know, five, six, seven years, right? Or at least they were out of the spotlight. Little Richard, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis went to the Army, right? And he Mm -hmm. has this comeback. But, you know, Chuck Berry was somewhat relevant for many years. He had that one album that came out right after he died. But, uh, you know, a good decade after he invented rock and roll, 15 years or so, in June 1960, he has a hit with this song. And I'll never forget when I first heard it. I think it was in a movie soundtrack, Walking to New Orleans, right? And I'm like, what is New Orleans? What? Mm. I, I don't know, but mm. I want to walk with fats to <laughs> New Orleans, right? I mean, and, and it's one of those great rock and roll songs that summons the feeling of walking in that muggy heat of this, one of America's greatest cities, one that, like I said, he never left, right. even after Katrina. Uh, well, I've been to New Orleans. I've walked around in you that swampy heat. You don't want to walk too fast. You don't want to You got to roll down the street, right? And there's the sexiness in that rolling down the street and uh i think we got to play walking to new orleans huge hit for fats again in 1960 
That is walking to New Orleans from the great Fats Domino, dead at the age of 89. We want to hear from you. What are your memories of Fats Domino and those incredible piano parts? Let us know on our hotline, 888-859-1800. After a short break, we'll talk about artists who put on musical costumes in the spirit of Halloween. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I'm lonely as I can be. I'm waiting for your company. I'm hoping that you come back to me. What you gonna do? Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. And in honor of Halloween, our uh, favorite holiday, Jim, or at least mine. Uh, it is. There is no place to trick-or-treat in Chicago like the Cott House. <laughs> we do it upright, and so does our whole block. And it's it's a lot of fun to put on a costume and, and be somebody, somebody different for a night. We wanted to pay tribute to artists who have done the same thing in their career, where they adopt a fake name or a fake persona and play in a different style entirely in some cases. So not literal costumes like yeah. Kiss, right? Exactly. We're talking about a band becoming someone else. Yeah, a metaphorical costume, ah. if you will. A bad example of this might be Garth Brooks from the 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember Garth in the 90s? I mean, you could not escape him. He was selling millions and millions of records. And he then... had the economy of, of some small countries. Uh, yes, he did. I got friends in places where the whiskey And then all of a sudden in 1999, he just gets bored or something and decides, I'm going to reinvent myself. I'm going to become this guy, Chris Gaines, who kind of sort of still looks like Garth Brooks, but not quite because he's got the soul patch going on. Well, and the hat went, And right? the hat got taken off and suddenly he's turning into someone, you know, kind of a, one of those, uh, you know, noodle-brained third tier alt rock bands remember how well, alternative rock format was yeah. sort of fading away in the late oh, 90s I, I thought he wanted to be billy joel something like that i don't know as a singer songwriter rocker anything but a, a mainstream country artist And the wig and the soul patch and the songs 
just were working, man. Yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. horrible it's a bad idea costume. for a costume. It's a really bad costume. But we want to do bands who did the costume upright. Right, right. We're going to try to dig a fairly deep here. Every time on this show when I play XTC, I say, oh, my God, how come we don't play more XTC? Because they're just one of my favorite bands ever in the realm of pop. You know, I think it's like the Beatles and then there's XTC. So there's two fantastic albums. There are no bad XTC albums, but two of their strongest in the mid-'80s, The Big Express in 84 and Skylarking in 86. I'm going to play uh, their alternate guys that came in the middle, Greg, when they, out of sheer boredom, decide, you know, they, they spend their lives in the recording studio, mm-hmm. right? And then they decide, let's spend some more time and have some, like, more fun in the recording studio. Obviously, they are big aficionados of not only the Beatles of Revolver and the Pink Floyd of Piper at the Gates of Dawn, but they love the creation mm-hmm. and all those bands that played at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, you know? <laughs> My White Bicycle and Grounded and songs like that by The Sin and Tomorrow. So they decide to become a circa 67 psychedelic rock band. And their label at the time, Virgin, which had put out many of those bands back in the day, um, actually puts out the Dukes of Stratosphere, this alter ego of XTC, without letting people know who it was. Now, everybody figured out fairly quickly, as I recall. I was a big XTC mm-hmm. fan. It was, you know, you have Andy Partridge and those vocals, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is XTC. They're screwing around with mm-hmm. us, right? But the irony is that the uh, Dukes of Stratosphere, they put out one EP, 25 o'clock, and the Sonic Sunspot. Uh, I'm having trouble saying that because it's P-S-O-N-I-C and, and P-S-U-N. Sunspot, right? Uh, They put out those records, and they outsell the actual XDC records, the Big Express and Skylarking. They they went full bore. You know, they took pictures in the psychedelic guys looking uh, cooler than the Sgt. Pepper Beetle costumes, and they invent alter egos. Andy Partridge becomes Sir John Johns, and Colin Moulding, his (laughs) songwriting partner, the bassist in the band, is the Red Curtain. I'm going to play the absolute silliest song, because I do think the EP, 20 Five o'clock is better than Sonic Sunspot, right? Because this is a joke. It, you can go out on Halloween in a costume, but you know you go to another party at a different time, and it's like <laughs> you're pushing the envelope, right? The EP is perfect, though. Six songs, I love them all, but I'm going to play the goofiest, "The Mole from the Ministry" by the Dukes of Stratosphere on Sound Opinions.
The mole in the ministry, XTC as the Dukes of Stratosphere. <laughs> so, Greg, uh, give me a give me a band becoming another band. That's a good one, Jim. Uh, I'm going to go back to the originator of this concept in some ways. I think you could look at Paul McCartney and the Beatles as the originator of the concept of the costume band with Sergeant Pepper's, Pepper's yeah. Lonely Hearts Club Band, right? From mm-hmm. their arguably their most famous record. Uh, that was back in 1967. And McCartney liked to play with persona throughout his career. McCartney Files, and you know who you are, uh, probably own a copy of the Percy Thrillington easy listening version <laughs> yeah. of the Ram album that came out in yeah. 1977. A kind of an easy listening version of that record in a new McCartney persona. They own it, but I hope they don't listen to it. <laughs> Well, that would be the case, perhaps, of the, the fireman incarnation that came later on in the 90s. You know, McCartney was kind of a, uh, entranced with the, this emerging electronic ambient movement and decided to uh, throw in with a British producer who had his uh, thumbprints all over, a guy by the name of Youth, otherwise known as uh, Martin Glover. And uh, he, you know, said, uh, OK, let's do this project and let's release it anonymously. I want you to remix my music, and then it's, you know, let's let's put out a single. And then it became an album. Before you know it, there's this Fireman Records that's showing up in Record Source with this red cover mm-hmm. and no other information other than the fact that there's this new group out. Who knows what it is? It's an electronic ambient record. So the joke goes that a lot of McCartney fans, once they figured out that this was McCartney, bought the album. It was the first ambient electronic record they bought, and yeah, also the last. The last. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he puts out another record in a similar vein in 1998 called Rushes with Youth. And actually, you know, we're sort of laughing about it, but it's actually pretty. Oh, I like not that. Bad. That's not a, bad at all. Fine record. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're both decent uh, attempts at this uh, at this genre uh, experimentation. I think it's one of the most adventurous things McCartney has done in the last 30 years. And I would include the entire Fireman catalog in mm-hmm. that realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the McCartney solo records, uh, not so much, mm, but no. definitely the stuff that he's doing with the Fireman is kind of some of the more adventurous stuff he's done. Um, not, I'm not going to say it's as good as the Beatles, but it's it's certainly uh, quite credible. Uh, let's play a track from the third Fireman record, Electric Arguments, 2008, a track called Nothing Too Much, Just Out of Sight. McCartney has never rocked as hard as this uh, in the last 30 years. It's the Fireman on Sound Opinions.
That's the fireman with nothing too much just out of sight. Paul McCartney in costume as an electric ambient blues shouter. I love that, Greg. Yeah. It's no Brian Eno, yeah. but I love it. Um, I'm going to go to one of my all-time favorite singers in the history of rock and roll, bar none. I think top five for me is David Roger Johansson, son of Staten Island, New York, okay? Uh, Johansson, of course, was the lead singer of the New York Dolls. If you don't own the two New York Dolls albums, 73, 74, uh, then you don't understand rock and roll. I'm sorry. Trash! Pick it up! Take them lights away! Trash! So, a godfather innovator of punk. But I think you have to really have uh, grown up in New York or across the river like I did to understand Buster Poindexter. In the late 80s, after the Dolls, and then there's a great solo career that Johansson has. One of the first interviews I ever did as a young cub music journalist was with the great David Johansson. He begins playing these kind of weekly club shows. And then, you know, at the pinnacle, New Year's Eve. There was nothing like New Year's Eve with David Johansson. He is a toastmeister. He is uh, doing Catskills comedy shtick, <laughs> right? You see some of this when he plays the cab driver in Scrooge. Right, right, right. Right, this persona. Relax, Frank. Enjoy the ride. How do you know my name? I know absolutely everything, Frank. You see, I'm the ghost. <laughs> he's, he's the king of the party. There's nobody. There can be a thousand people at Irving Plaza in New York, and if there's one who isn't dancing, Johansson's going to find them and make them. <laughs> Johansson has Buster Poindexter. So Buster Poindexter is a lounge lizard. He's a fan of, of Spanish salsa music and calypso and Caribbean sounds and Cuban sounds and R&B. He's got the best, uh, one of the best bands in, in kind of the New York R&B underground, the Uptown Horns, mm -hmm. right? So now you're thinking at home, Jim's going to play Hot, 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 which David has said was the bane of his existence. The biggest hit he ever had, and it's a novelty hit, right? You know, I'm telling you, look, you're thinking of it in terms of like when they play YMCA at the Bad Wedding, you know, and, and there's a bit of that. But if you were in New York when... David Johansson as Buster Poindexter, backed by that big band, the Uptown. Yeah. I mean, there was no better party that I've ever been new at age 53. So Buster Poindexter, hot, hot, hot on Sound Opinions. Yes, Buster Poindexter, a.k.a. David Johansson with Hot, Hot, Hot. You know, he had another guy's, too, as the Harry Smiths. Right. He was he was covering that great folk songbook. We had him on Sound Opinions a million years ago. And then he came back and did the New York Dolls again, and it all went out the window. So It was kind of sad. <laughs> you can't go back to the New York Dolls. You can't. We'll have more of our picks of musical costumes after a short break. And Toronto star critic Ben Rayner pays tribute to Gord Downey of The Tragically Hip. 
That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Come on, let's do it. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and uh, this week we are looking at these uh, fake name bands in honor of Halloween. You know, let's put on a costume. Let's be somebody we aren't. Let's sound like somebody we aren't. Uh, Costume in the grand metaphorical sense of becoming something other. Exactly. In this next example, we're going to take the band Sonic Youth, the hipster band of all hipster bands from the 1980s New York City. Reinventing themselves as something called Chicone Youth. People will know the reference Chicone, Madonna, Louise Chicone, the biggest pop star of the 80s. They want to have a little bit of fun with uh, the pop music of the time and uh, started working with these drum loops and MIDI synthesizers and elements that they had never really incorporated in their sound or in their records. And they decided, well, this is so far afield of what we normally do that we're going to put this out kind of surreptitiously and mm-hmm. see what people think. And it all started kind of innocently. Mike Watt, the great bass player in the Minutemen, was devastated when his partner D. Boone died in a car accident on the road in 1985. The first notes he played on his bass guitar after his partner died were, were on a Sonic Youth record, Evil, that came out in 1986. Uh, Sonic Youth sort of helped him recover from from that loss. He and Thurston Moore were just sitting around having a conversation in the middle of this record. And they said, you know, I just want to have some fun. That's what Watt was saying. I want to get back into music, have some fun. Thurston Moore got them all fired up. He went back, made a demo uh, of a, a Madonna cover. Like, mm-hmm. what is the weirdest, wildest, funnest thing I can do right now? Well, I'm going to cover this new pop star, Madonna. And he recorded a track called Burning Up. Uh, and and uh, that Madonna had recorded and made his own version of it, sent the cassette to Moore. Thurston Moore's mind starts working here. Maybe we should do like our own version of a Madonna song. That became Into the Groovy, a version of Into the Groove, and that mushroomed into an entire album. So you have Mike Watt from the Minutemen, uh, soon to be Firehose on this record. You have Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Jr., another hipster god of the 80s, yeah. you know, contributing to this record. And then you have the members of Sonic Youth posing as Chicone 
Youth on this record. It sounds a little bit like Sonic Youth in its most Sonic Youthy uh, experimental moments, but the, in, in the more rhythmic oriented tracks, it really does sort of I, take I can't them get far behind afield. this record. I didn't like it when it came out. I don't like it now. I like this record, this particular track, uh, into the groovy because it does have a groove and it does have a lot of fun with the whole concept of this electro rock thing that they kind of envisioned as this record being. I don't think the rest of the record quite lives up to the hype, but I think this song does. Into the Groovy, their tribute to Madonna from Chicone Youth on Sound Opinions. by Chicone Youth, Moonlighting Sonic Youth, and other indie hipsters. Greg, uh, my last uh, costume band for Halloween pick is the complicated, and it really does hurt my brain, story of the KLF. Mm. Now, the KLF had more costumes, more guises, more names. I think the best way to understand the KLF is that they are the Brit equivalents of Negative Land in terms of being sampling tape multi-artist uh, uh, just kind of pranksters, right? They're justified and they're ancient and they like to roam the land They're justified and they're ancient I hope you understand uh, Bill Drummond is the guy who manages uh, the Teardrop Explodes and Echo and the Bunnymen early on when we have this Liverpool bubblegum psychedelia scene. I love those records. He starts Zoo Records. He has a buddy, a musician, Jimmy Cowdy, who is uh, also a visual artist. They form uh, the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. Right? Mm-hmm. It was a nonsensical name, but they really call themselves the KLF. They go between those two names. They later have a KLF Communications record label and book publishing house, and they're devoted to the Illuminatus trilogy. They're conspiracy theorists. They love to spread disinformation. They're just pranksters on every level. And as if all of that is not complicated enough and enough of a creative outlet, they decide. We can create an alter ego that will have a number one hit. We have the secret to create, and I quote, a record so noxious that the top ten can be its only destiny. So this is the heyday of Doctor Who. Mm. They become 
Time Lords, and they write this single, Doctrine the TARDIS. It is a reworking of the Doctor Who theme combined with three glam glitter hits. Blockbuster by The Sweet, Let's Get Together Tonight by Steve Walsh, and most notably, Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 2. All of this gets mashed up. There's some Doctor Who uh, samples in there. You know, I, I don't think the KLF or the Time Lords or the Justified Ancients of Moo, they couldn't do what they're did then today, right, because of the way sampling laws have been tightened. But at this point, they're writing the book on all this stuff. Nobody had done this yet. You know, Beastie Boys are starting to go there with Paul's Boutique, but the stuff coming out of the UK, courtesy of these insane guys in the KLF, is just mind-boggling. People didn't realize right away the Time Lords were the KLF. Eventually, they discovered it. This record, I mean, it... I can't decide ever still whether it's incredibly annoying or sheer brilliance. I think it's both. Here they are on Sound Opinions. That is Time Lords with Doctorin' the TARDIS. Greg, they set out to write a number one hit. They made number one in the UK, and then in typical KLF fashion, they put out a book, the manual, How to Have a Number One the Easy Way. (laughs) What is your last pick? Jim, I am going to go to a prince who uh, loves to play with personas, loves to play with androgyny, loves to play with uh, sexual fluidity. I think he said, okay, I'm going to make a whole album that... uh, you know, and honors these concepts. Um, So he became Camille for a brief time in the late 80s, right after the revolution had broken up. He'd broken up the revolution, one of his most successful bands, goes into the studio by himself with engineer Susan Rogers and says, I'm going to make a whole record of this character, Camille, that I've been thinking about for a while. This is before the unpronounceable symbol days, right? This is true. This is in the late 80s, right before things really got Uh, went south with Warner Brothers Records. He was still in the midst of an incredible creative spurt. What came out of this was an amazing record, uh, Sign of the Times. Uh, But initially, his intent was to put out a record called Camille, a self-titled record. And he was uh, trying to do it anonymously. He told Warner Brothers, I've got these tracks that I've recorded as this androgynous character. (laughs) Uh, You can't tell it's me because I pitched up the vocals to the point where it sounds like a woman singing. Although, you know, you could say 
that Princess Falsetto had sort of yeah. a certain female quality about it all along. But he either pitch shifted the vocals or or speeded up the tape to make it sound like another person was singing these tracks. But if you listen closely, there's a lot of Prince characteristics about it. You know, he's playing all the instruments himself. You know, it's his sensibility in the lyrics. So people would have figured it out eventually. But the record company didn't like the idea that you're going to put out a Prince record and not call it a Prince record. You Warner Brothers never gave him much slack, no. So eventually, I think, even though copies of the record apparently were printed out, much like the infamous Black Album mm-hmm. of this same general time frame, where a record was actually made, printed up, apparently ready to be put into stores, and then got pulled back at the last minute. And the tracks from the Camille album ended up on other projects, including Sign of the Times. I'm going to play one of the tracks that I think is perhaps the most successful one from the record. It's called If I Was Your Girlfriend. It ended up on Sign of the Times, but I, I think it really gets to the heart of what Prince was trying to get here in terms of flipping the genders, what he was trying to do with it in a really profound way. If I Was Your Girlfriend from Camille, a.k.a. Prince, on Sound Opinions. Tell me all the things you forgot when I was your man. Hey, hey, when I was your man. If I was your best friend, would you let me take care of you? And do all the things that only a best friend can. Oh, only best friends can. Help me pick out your clothes before we go out. Not that you're helpless, but sometimes, sometimes those are the things that being in love is about. Camille, a.k.a. Prince, If I Was Your Girlfriend, a track that eventually ended up on the Sign of the Times record on Sound Opinions. That wraps up our discussion of artists who wear musical costumes in honor of Halloween. But what's your favorite example of an artist who adopts a fake name to play in an uncharacteristic style? Call and leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. That is a little bit of Courage, a 1992 song by the Tragically Hip. Gord Dowdy, lead singer of the band, died on October 17th, only 53 years old, after a very public battle with brain cancer. Greg, uh, you know, to be honest, like a lot of Americans, neither of us have followed the career of the Tragically Hip all that closely. It's a band I respect, but I never loved. They got some airplay, never really broke big in the U.S., but it is a completely different story 
in their native Canada, where Gord Downey was revered as a national treasure. Even Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, he broke down in tears when he made a statement the morning after this musician's death. We are less as a country without Gord Downey in it. Uh, and it, and we all knew it was coming, but we hoped it wasn't. And uh, I thought I was going to make it through this, but I'm not. It hurts. Jim, I think there's no doubt that it's hard for a lot of Americans to understand just how important Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip are to Canadian culture. So to get a better sense of that, we turned to our friend Ben Rayner, who's the music critic at the Toronto Star. And we spoke to Ben the day after Gord Downey's death, and we asked him what the country's reaction was like. It was, it was quite, quite something to behold yesterday, though. I, I, yeah. I felt like the country kind of ground to a halt for a day. Well, and I, I don't, I'm trying to think of when the last time. I, I kind of likened it to someone to, like, the Kennedy assassination. Honestly, wow. and I, I didn't really hear anybody talk about anything else. And the national wow. news on CBC and the national news on CTV was almost all Gordon Downey. Like, it was crazy. I was like, there's got to be something else going on. You know, this is, mm. I, I talked to a lot of people today, or yesterday, who were just, Crippled. Um, ben, why do you think Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip meant so much to Canadians? One of the things at the root, I think, is that Canada's, you know, a small country. or a tenth the size of the U.S. So, in some small senses, a lot of people actually had met the Tragically Hip, you know, since their time. Or they knew, they of, knew the band, yeah. One of the main roots of this was that he was just like a very well-liked human being, mm-hmm. on top of the fact that he played in this band that was kind of ours, right? Like there, and it's it's an, a, a well-traveled uh, road to talk about how they never quite duplicated their success here uh, abroad. I mean, the, with the hip, it's I think a lot of a lot of what they talked about and a lot of the the landscapes in which their songs were situated were actually very authentically Canadian, and, and in a kind of a, a way that would be impenetrable to outside audiences. Things like Hugh McLennan, uh, Canadian author and poet, or like David Milgard, who's a guy who was wrongly imprisoned for a murder he didn't commit. You know, th- these are, they're, they're very specifically Canadian topics. Maybe that, um, maybe that was a barrier to it traveling. 20 years for nothing, well, that's nothing new besides. No one's interested in something you didn't do. Also, they were like, they were they got big in Canada, playing fairly straightforward kind of, you know, barroom bluesy rock and roll. Just happened to have a really brainy literate uh, lead singer. But right at that moment when they're about to kind of crest into say the states. They got weird, and they stayed weird for the rest of their career. Mm. Kind of fearless musically in that way, and I, I think they refused to play the game. They managed to stay at like an arena level without making pop hits. Gord Downey announced in May of 2016 that he had a terminal brain tumor. So, uh, you know, it was a final tour, right? And and Canada, and it was as if he was saying goodbye. Nobody in that band actually thought he'd be able to do it. I mean, they were kind of humoring him mm. because he'd just come out of chemotherapy and, and had, you know, I think two, you know, brain operations. 
and insisted that he could do it. And, and in the beginning, couldn't even remember any of the lyrics. You know, that's, I know it was kind of frail. And somehow um, pulled it together to do these kind of superhuman three-hour sets a night uh, yeah. all across the country. It was a very brave, brave thing to do um, and, and to be so open about it and to, to kind of go out with that kind of class. Um, and then, obviously, he, he went on to, to do a lot of work on behalf of uh, reconciliation and Aboriginal rights. And so he, yeah. he, that's how he went out, right? Like, it was a, a really class act. And I, I think it was such a, a, a show of strength again that I, I think a lot of people didn't think that they would come. Like, my girlfriend yeah. woke me up yesterday and was like, uh, Ben Cordanley died. And I, I was actually, like, at that moment of disbelief, even though we all kind of knew it was ha- uh, it was coming. So it was, it was a hard day. It was a hard. That was, yeah. I was some of the hardest writing I've ever had to do was his obituary. Ben, uh, to pay tribute to Gord Downey, dead at the age of fifty-three. What's the tragically hip song you would have us play out? Oh, oh man! You know, I I had this one on last night, and I'm going to be a sensitive man right now. And I I danced with my nine-month-old daughter uh, in my arms and and cried buckets. Uh, there's a song on Phantom Power, which is my favorite tragically hip album. Uh, called Escape is at Hand for the Traveling Man. Mm. I feel like that would be a nice way to go out. All right. We've been talking to Ben Rayner at the Toronto Star, our man in Canada. I say that with great affection, uh, paying homage to Gord Downey, leader of the Tragically Hip, dead at the age of 53. Thanks so much, Ben. Hey, guys, anytime. It's always a pleasure. It's our third time in New York. It's your fourth time in New York. We were fifth and sixth on the bill. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to dig up some buried treasures. We're going to play some records that we think are underneath the mainstream radar, but that you cannot live without. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions is produced by Brandon Banaszak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Ayana Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Ben from Los Angeles. Just got done listening to your interview with Julie Klausner of Difficult People. Fantastic interview. She was great. She was funny. She was hilarious. And I may have a small crush on her at the moment because she loves great music. And you guys had a big discussion about musical theater and how you're not a big fan. And she listed off some things. She said Rocky Horror, and you said that was good. And she said she said Hedwig. And you may not have heard it. It may have, it may have passed you by, but you kind of just seem to dismiss it. And if you haven't seen it, Hedwig and the Angry Inch is every bit as good as Rocky Horror Picture Show, if not better. They got amazing original songs in the style of the Reed, David Bowie, Iggy Pop. The story is amazing. I would say The Origin of Love 
is absolutely right up there with some of the greatest songs ever written. And what a performance, what a show. It should definitely not be dismissed. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Folks from the earth, like big rolling kegs, they had two sets of arms, they had two sets of legs, they had two faces peering out of one giant head so they could Watch all around them as they talked while they read and they never knew nothing. Hey, Greg and Jim. This is Vincent from Chicago, Bronzeville neighborhood. And I know you guys are probably looking for more uh, new TV shows that were using music really well. But I have to go back to the late 90s and think about a couple of the shows you know, say what you want about them, like Dawson's Creek or uh, the teenage alien drama Roswell, and how they use music, not so much maybe the songs that they chose, but the way they did them back then on the WB Network, which is where they would actually go ahead and promote who was singing and the song there, so you didn't have to spend hours trying to search and ask your friends who it was, because you know, obviously in the uh, late 90s, this was, you know, the decade before Twitter and Facebook and social media. And yeah, the internet was around, but it, it isn't the powerhouse that it was now. I mean, Google was still a small child. So, uh, you know, like the songs that were playing on it or not, uh, the WB network and some of those, you know, teenage and early 20 shows back in the day uh, led the forefront when it, when it came to getting new music out to people. Thanks, guys. Great show. Hi, my name is Elizabeth. I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. And this is just in response to shows that really had a good use of, of music. And I know it was only on for one season, but don't forget about Freaks and Geeks. It's just fantastic how they wove those old songs into that amazing program. And, uh, you know, it just it, it hits you home. And, you know, you hear those old songs on the radio and you think back to those scenes in the show. And it's just phenomenal. So, yeah, don't forget about Freaks and Geeks, one of my favorites use rock and roll very well you guys are awesome don't stop what you're doing and uh take care hi this is joe i'm from new jersey i just want to make a comment on the kurt vile right up today i listen to you guys all the time i have to say uh, i can't disagree with you more i think this guy he doesn't sing he moans it's like nails on a blackboard trying to listen to him sing he might be a great guitarist but i would never ever buy that album Sorry, can't can't agree with this time, but I like the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. I noticed you stopped talking to me. Now you're talking to me all the time. Do you know you know No more messages. To give us your opinions on sound opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.